Steve and I used to have this thing, this sort of motto, which was, oh, just what we wanted. And it was a little phrase that we would play to each other and repeat to each other whenever something changed. You know, oh, there's a race delay and other crews, you know, they've gone back to fix their boat. We're going to push the boat back, push the race back or 10 minutes. You're out in the water, you're warming up, you're ready to go. And now it's 10 minutes. And then one of us would sell just what we wanted for no other reason. There's absolutely no logical explanation why it was just what we wanted, but it just became that's perfect. That's exactly what we want. You know, the weather changes round from head to tailwind, the, the rain starts coming in, the, you know, the umpire's launch breaks down, you know, whatever it can be, our response would be just what we wanted. This is perfect. And it obviously isn't perfect, but it's the same for everybody. Hi there, folks. It's Steve Ingham here and a very warm welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. If you're listening to this in the middle of July, then I'm sure you've been soaking up the many amazing sporting performances that we've been witnessing over the last couple of months, whether that's the Euros, Tour de France, Wimbledon and now the Olympics. And we've got a treat in store for you today on this episode. So the purpose of this podcast is to speak to Olympic champions, Formula One drivers, top-level sports coaches, researchers breaking new ground in aspects of performance. And if you've ever wondered about striving towards a goal or taking a leap of faith, setting your sights high, bouncing back from a setback or whatever it might be, then you're going to be in good company here on this podcast. I hope you can take a chance to listen to these conversations, get lost a little bit in some of the back catalogue of the varied contributions over time and take time to reflect on what that means for you. I'm not sure my introduction can do these people justice today, but I'm going to give it a go. Sir Steve Raygrave and Sir Matthew Pinson are as successful a sporting duo as you're ever going to meet. Steve has won five Olympic gold medals at five successive games and is a nine-time world champion. Matt has won four Olympic gold medals at four successive games and ten world championships in rowing. They were successful before Britain became really good at sport. Uh, winning before assist them started to assist winning. But it's not just the occasional win. Steve and Matt were sustained winners and dominated their opposition. And I had the privilege of working with Steve and Matt from 1998. Probably you know that already because I mentioned them nearly every other week. I supported them along with team, Tim Foster and James Cracknell to the Sydney Olympics. And I can't tell you just how much influence they both had on me as a professional sports scientist and as a person. Their focus, their standards, the intensity, but also their thinking, their understanding, and at times philosophy was just so impressive. You couldn't help but learn from it. You're going to hear that through this conversation, which was just inspiring to have. It was also surprising. It was fun, and it, at times it was emotional. It's it's great to speak to you both, and um, and take some time to reflect and and hear some of your thoughts and reflections. I, I've sort of used a little bit of a an excuse to catch up with you with the twenty five years since since Atlanta. But it seems a bit silly in some ways that it's sort of I could choose from so many of the different wins. I'm sure you've got an anniversary every every year, haven't you, of some sort? Um, 
so many successes and sort of a dominant career. Um, but before I get into reflecting on Atlanta, we're speaking now in May. Um, I'd love to know what you'd be thinking as an athlete about about the upcoming games. Firstly, the delay. What what that would have been like to kind of put the the major competition back a year? How would you have framed that mentally? But then also the uncertainty of the games going ahead in the in the weeks ahead. I've been through that before. Um, that uh, the Moscow Moscow games where I, I made the selection to go to the team and then not sent because of the political situation at the time, um, and then then sort of uh, four years later on the uh, of LA games. It was always sort of touch and go. Was it going ahead? Was the Eastern Bloc going to boycott? Um, and that was well into May till they, they decided that uh, they weren't going. And that did that does have an impact. I, I still hold the scars for not not going to Moscow. Um, the chairman of selectors that uh, of, of uh, uh, I did a speech for um, his company um, once I retired, and he was then saying. How do you think I feel is that I was the chairman of selectors that didn't select Steve Redgrave to go to Moscow when every other games he went to, he came back with a gold medal. How, how stupid do you think I feel now um, that I wouldn't, I wouldn't have medaled. I probably wouldn't have been in the final, but uh, that I, I hate it. I hated that outside forces making decisions on, on your career, especially in those days where it was a very, very amateur and it was all your own funding and, and uh, uh, that process. There wasn't any lottery grants or of, of uh, uh, um, sports aid foundation, um, people like that supporting it. Um, and so that was, that was quite difficult. But being young, I was 18 at the time, knowing that uh, I, would, I would have one or two more games after that, is that you sort of uh, think that uh, you, could, you could cope with that and, and deal with it. But this, this process, um, that of being delayed a year, I would have hated that as an athlete. Um, that you gear yourselves up physically and mentally to try and produce the goods, and then the goalposts get moved. Um, Matt and I were very consistent athletes, so it wouldn't have affected us as, as to as, as a lot of other people. But there are Olympians that would have gone for gold medals that now won't be at the level of being able to compete 12 months on. Um, um, some people's dreams will be shattered. Uh, other people's, it, it plays in their hands because they get into the team a little bit earlier. They're knocking those people off their, their, their perches. Um, and so you've got to feel for the athletes from, from that point of view. But I think also athletes are very sort of are geared up to getting on with whatever's put in front of them. Um, and if you sit down and think about it all, you could really screw your, your mind up about it all. But you just get on with the training. You just get on with the preparation and, and uh, hope the, that sooner than later that somebody says, yes, it's definitely going to happen. But we hear, we hear that all the time. But then there's also the, the sort of the media saying, well, no, it might not happen. And the, the Tokyo public are not uh, that supportive. Um, uh, and now we've got quite a lot of high businesses associated to the games that uh, are saying, don't stage the games, stage to the games. I would have hated to be an athlete in, in that situation, but I know that we we would have focused ourselves on the goal ahead and you focus on that goal until it's taken away from you. 
and then you reevaluate. I think it's I think it's particular I think it's particularly difficult for this generation. I think it's a step beyond anything that we had. Um, and the only thing I can say is that we probably would have treated it like other delays or upsets that we had, you know, which are mini in comparison. You know, let's say the morning of the final, it's changed by an hour or six hours because of the weather, which we had often enough in our career. Um, and at that point, yes, it becomes testing, but you say, right, whenever it is, we'll be ready. It doesn't matter when the flag drops, we're going to be ready. And I just think that you have to double down on that again and again and again and say, I'm not having this change the outcome of, of my Olympics. I'm not going to let it get to me because in the run of time, no one's going to remember. No one's going to remember whether the Olympics were delayed by a year or cancelled outright or as we had, whether a bomb went off six hours before an Olympic final. It just, you know, the only thing that matters is your desire and your drive to win. And if you've got to wait for a year and then some, so be it. And I just think you've got to be sort of grimly determined and i but i absolutely say this is on a different level to anything i think our generation had i i do think it's completely different is that something that becomes um trained or you get skilled at well we've dealt with this situation before in that way so we'll deal with this situation again in this way a bit like um i guess like a false start in 100 meters you can be affected by the false start or you get skilled at resetting and thinking it's another race. It's a, it's, I can control what I can control. Steve and I used to have this thing, this sort of motto, which was, oh, just what we wanted. And it was a little phrase that we would play to each other and repeat to each other whenever something changed. You know, oh, there's a race delay. Another crew is, you know, they've gone back to fix their boat. We're going to push the boat back push the race back or 10 minutes you're out in the water you're warming up you're ready to go and now it's 10 minutes and then one of us would sell just what we wanted for no other reason there's absolutely no logical explanation why it was just what we wanted but it just became that's perfect that's exactly what we want you know the weather changes around from head to tailwind the, the rain starts coming in the you know the umpire's launch breaks down you know, whatever it can be our response would be just what we wanted this is perfect and it obviously isn't perfect, but it's the same for everybody. And that became a sort of jokey motto to us to deal with the most, you know, we had one race in Indianapolis in 94 where we found a hairline crack on the, on the rigger a couple of hours before the race. And it was like, right, are we going to race with this knowing that it might break in the middle of the race? Or are we going to try and get this fixed? There's no way of getting this fixed. And it was just like, this is perfect. This is just what we wanted. We're going to go out and do this, you know, and it just became, but, it, but, it, but otherwise you're starting to allow in all sorts of stuff that can mess with your head. You know, it's like, what can you do? The, 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 the rigor cannot be fixed. The, the race is not going to be delayed. This is the equipment you've got. There's a hairline crack in it. You can either row quite gently feeling that you're going to, you're going to be, it's going to break at some point during the race. Or you can just give it what for and go for it 
and put it to the back of your mind and and no one will ever know and and you know it it, it just is it is control the controllables to the nth degree so is, is that just just what we wanted i can imagine a, a few expletives um inserted in there just in case but um was that in a sense of that increases the probability that someone else is going to get disturbed by that that plays to our advantage I think Matt, Matt well I mean say, I think it just yeah. it got, go on Matt go on keep going Steve that Matt was very good at in, in so in situations like that that I, I've forgotten I was thinking about in Indianapolis about the weather conditions because there was a, a strong headwind for the heat and, and semi-final and nobody likes racing us in a, into a headwind we don't like racing into a headwind but that as soon as it turns around the other way and it's a tailwind is that you can physically see your opposition get a, a sort of a, a jump in their step and they think, oh, we've got a chance. No, you don't. You don't have a chance. You're still going to get beaten, but you're going to row harder because you think the conditions are, are favouring you. And so that was my, my one from the Indianapolis World Championships. But uh, uh, I, I had forgotten about the, 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 the crack in the rigour. Uh, Pat Sweeney uh, the, the, the coaching and some coxing for us um, um, and he was sort of the sidekick to, to Jürgen they were checking over the boat they found this uh, hairline crack um, uh, knowing that Matt falls asleep uh, before races uh, Pat came to me and said uh, uh, come and have a look at this so I went and had a look at the, 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 the crack and you're thinking well, our aim frames, because we sat closer in the boat uh, than any other pair did. So we had special riggers made for us. And so they weren't standard. Uh, so we couldn't change anything. There was nothing there to change. And we sort of discussed it for a while. And then I wandered back to, to, to Matt. And uh, I said, there's a problem. And he says, uh, OK, what is it? I said, on your rigger, there's a hairline crack. And this is where it is. And he says, is it going to break? I said, no. He says, well... Let's get on with it then. And that, and that was it. Um, there wasn't any more discussion that was needed for that. The only thing that we did do is that when we turned the boat to go onto the pontoons for the, st the state boats for the start, is that we did turn around the other way because it was more extension than, <laughs> than compression. Um, and so we did, that's the only thing different that we did was actually getting onto the pontoons literally before we, we raced. That's, so that's that is a characteristic I've observed of just people being able to sort of go, okay, distraction, distraction, distraction. Now it's game time, and and being able to switch on in that sense. Matt, you, I remember you. I think it was in your autobiography. Matt, you you wrote about the nerves and the cacophony that kind of happens before a race, when actually you'd probably. I think the, there's something about the phrasing of if there was a chance just to go and step out and no one knows and no one questions it, I'd probably take it when it gets that, that noisy. You're that's very different from what you've just played in terms of um, yeah. just switching off and, and thinking uh, objectively about whether it's going to work or not. But I think that dialogue, those two voices, you know, um, Goran Ivinicevic talks about having the two voices on his on his shoulder when he played tennis. And that really struck a chord with me. There's one voice in, in there that's saying, 
you know, it, it's stressful, you don't want to be here, it's not going to go well, you're ill, uh, you know, you're going to lose, that's going on. And then there's the other voice, which is, you're in the right place, this is, it's always like this, uh, you need to be, you need to go through this in order to win, winning isn't easy, you need to get out there. Um, and that balance, there are different times in, in an Olympic run-in, and particularly in the last 24 hours, where where one voice has the has the upper hand and you've got to you've got to learn how to how to balance them how to how to quite or not balance them how to how to shut the negative one up um and you know i i i always struggled in olympics with nerves but the longer i did it the more i realized do you know what actually i've never raced without nerves of any description maybe once at henley when on an early round race where it was a sort of almost a sort of formality that we were going to win i wasn't nervous at all and it was horrendous and actually it's quite well written about you'll know this as well is that that nervous reaction arms you up with all sorts of fantastic things like adrenaline and your reaction speed improves and your your output improves um, and that's what you want you want the olympics to be different you want the olympics to be another level where you're right on the on the boundary of i'm scared witless or i'm just about to get the best performance out of me that i've ever had and it is not a it's not a very pleasant experience i don't know anybody who wanders down with an hour to go before for an olympic final and goes you know oh i'm feeling you know totally chilled and this is going to be great fun it's like you're staring down the barrels of right, this is the most important six minutes of my life. Even if I've done one of these before, by definition, the following one becomes more important in, in a weird way. But uh, we never really spoke about it too much around the Olympic times because it's, it, we could tell from each other that uh, the nerves that are going through our, our bodies. But one of the things that we used to say to each other quite a lot in the, in the build-up races through the, uh, the period of there, are you nervous yet? And I don't know why Ped Luco sticks into my mind as that one. We're paddling up to the start. And I said, are you, are you nervous yet, Matt? He says, no, no, not yet. <laughs> um, and the, you know that you need those, that adrenaline push to be able to get that, that uh, performance out of you. And one of the things that we were very good at is the bigger the race, the better we performed. Um, uh, the harder things were domestic trials, um, ergo tests, coming to the, the, the lab of, of, of whatever it was, is that you knew you had to do it, but it, it wasn't a life changer. Um, but it was all the stepping stones that you needed to. So we, we used to chat quite a lot and say, when the draw came out uh, of the World Championships, are you nervous yet? No, no, no. Who, who do you think? And then we're sort of then talk, talking about who would be racing and um, the surprises within that because we would predict uh, our opposition. And then we say there's going to be a surprise in there somewhere. Where the surprise is going to come from? And we would be looking at that. Uh, and sometimes that would get the sort of the, the adrenaline pumping. And uh, but quite often it didn't. It was it was sort of times. But Atlanta for me was probably the worst uh, for nerves wise. Uh, there was things going on at home and, and uh, I've, I've, I felt the, the, the pressure of the whole rowing world on my shoulders um, and my emotions were up and down the whole week, uh, really did struggle. 
Um, but Matt had the amazing, and we could tell when each other was, was needed to change the conversation away from racing onto something else. And it just sort of happened automatically because um, we were that sort of in tune of what we were doing. And if one felt it was just sort of bubbling over a little bit too much, then we would, it seemed natural just to go off at a tangent and talk about something else to bring us back down to make sure that we were right at the right place at the right time. So Atlanta is an interesting one from certainly looking back at the the position in history for you, but also for British sport. But the, I, I, I wondered if you felt that expectation that the gold medals weren't coming in for Britain and they're increasingly then putting the spotlight and focus on oh, Redgrave and Pinson will probably perform on the backdrop of a similar sort of theme that we've talked about, that you just had win after win after win, that you could sort of go, well, you know, we're, we're proven performers, that the opposition are going to struggle to be able to look beyond us winning. Um, how was that playing out for you then, Steve? Um, the, the visualization, I, I'd use in visualization quite a lot. So those times out of the boat, once we're in the boat, it was easy. That's what, what you train and prepare to do. It was out the boat that I, I struggled with. And so that I would use visualization of, of, of sitting in a boat and I'm rowing along the Australians who we've never raced. Um, are, they gonna, are they gonna beat us? And, and the answer was, was always no way. Um, but away, I could just feel the pressure of, of family, friends, the, the media, um, uh, throughout each one of my games that uh, the, the media picked up, um, the build-up to uh, um, um, LA is that uh, went to the studio at Des Lynham and said, oh, we're just going out to the rain basin at Lake Casitas. Uh, we, we think we've got a chance of a, of a gold medal in the Cox Four. Uh, over to Gerald Sinsdat. And there we are sitting on the line. Now you change that to Sydney is that almost every waking hour for the last uh, three weeks, there was stuff going on about us on the build-up. Um, but I could cope with that better. The, the step up to Barcelona, uh, media-wise, is that from Barcelona to Atlanta, it just changed hugely. Uh, it wasn't just the rowing press that wanted to come down and, and chat to us and see us. And that... We, we sort of rolled out the red carpet any time somebody wanted to come and, and see us because rowing doesn't get that coverage. And suddenly it was starting to get broadcasters from around the world that wanted to come down. And we made the conscious decision they could still come, but they had to fit into what we were doing and not us rolling out the red carpet for, for them. And that just, for me, just sort of galvanised of, of going through to, uh, uh, to Atlanta. Um, and it probably doubled or tripled from Atlanta going to Sydney, but it was about a hundred times going from Barcelona to Atlanta, and that's where I, I, I struggled with that. Um, I remember the uh, it was obviously it was the gold fever in the lead up to Sydney, but I remember these brilliant documentaries that you were featured in. Um, I think there were a few. There was a selection of different types of athletes. If, um, Shirley Robertson. John Regis, I seem to remember, they were brilliant. Yeah, Kelly Holmes. That seemed to start this further, almost personal connection and interest rather than, 
oh, the final's on. Let's see. We, we're far more interested in the lead, the full lead up. And those seem to get behind the scenes to create a connection with you as people as much as anything. So were you the steadying force on that day, Matt? I don't remember being much of a steadying force. Um, I just, when it, when it came to the crunch of a final, my sort of, you know, redoubt, my, my, my core was, I just want to go out there and show how good we can be. That was the, that was the sort of, that was the impetus was you can, you can sort of hunker down and crawl into a ball in the fetal position and it'll all go away. But actually, what's the point of that? Because you've just trained for four years straight in order to put yourself in this position. You might, and the logic goes, it's an awfully long way round to get back to this position again. He's only come along once every four years. So if you're not going to go out there now and do something you're proud of, you might go out there and do something you regret. And if, you're going, if the regret is going to fuel the next four years in order to get back to this position, that's a really unfortunate and long-winded cycle. So actually, get yourself on the front foot and say, I'm going to go out there and give it absolutely everything because I want to prove how good we can be. I know how good we are. And I want to find out if that's better than anyone else in the race. I've got a hunch it's good enough. There are a couple of crews in this six boat final who I don't think are within a you know country mile of us. Maybe you could persuade yourself of that. But there's probably three or four boats out of the six who are thinking today's our day and we're going to win. And it's our job to show them that that's not going to happen. And that became, a, then it becomes a sort of pride thing of you're not going to get past me. And, and that suddenly brings you out of the fetal position and you're suddenly then like, right, okay. You know, and you look around on the start line and yeah, the heart is going and the adrenaline's going, but you're turning it into fight, not flight. You know, that primeval response of you're either running away or you're standing and fighting. Well, I'm, you know, I'm going to turn that into, into aggression here. And it's going it's, to, you better watch out, guys, because you don't want to be in the way of it. And suddenly then you're, you're ready to start. I remember, Steve, you giving a talk at the Gold Coast um, team gathering. We all got together in the, in the same room and you gave a bit of a talk. I think you gave a few uh, little insights into don't get carried away with the Daily Thompson. My thumb was hurting from the 84 games. I think it was something like that. Yeah, the, the, the video game called the Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> and you gave a lovely little um, don't get caught with all the bullshit. Um, just focus on what you need to do. I mean, I was sat there for an hour listening to you, and I think Greg Searle gave a, a talk, and I was just goosebumps the whole time. But I remember one one phrase that you you um, said, which which was rowing is a form sport, which was you get you get what you get, and there was a there was a I think it's half the room sort of stepped up from that, and just went, okay we're all right. This, this could be good then. You know, we might get what we deserve. Half the room just sort of went, oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which, which, which was a dose of just reality, but also speaks to the necessity for you to set 
the standards that you set every single day in building to that position. Um, that seemed to be my, uh, for, as, as someone who's not an elite athlete, that was the biggest acceleration that I experienced uh, stepping onto the bus with you guys was standards. Uh, I thought I had, had high standards and I was like, oh, I've, I'm going to reset some of my standards now. <laughs> meeting meeting you guys every single day, it was it was like that. You lived that for the three point nine nine years, didn't you? Yeah, de- definitely. Of, of the we we pushed ourselves um, um, and each other um, probably a lot of the time more than we would do in, in racing. Is that we trained harder than we hoped the race would be. Um, um, and that was sort of one of one. Of, we had lots of sort of one-liners, mantles that we we sort of worked to. Uh, Matt mentioned one of the, the, the earlier of of it doesn't matter when when the race is, we're ready to race. Um, uh, whatever the situation is, we're ready to go. Um, and uh, that we would we would sort of of push ourselves, especially in the gym. Uh, if we were in um, uh, single skulls, we would be racing each other. Um, that uh, it would be a battle all the time. But as soon as we stepped into that pair, and latterly the four, then that was us against the rest of the world. Uh, we would have battles with Jürgen, uh, uh, our coach, uh, of do we need to do that training? Should we be doing this? And, and, and banter with him. But if anybody else criticised him, then we would stand shoulder to shoulder with him because that was our team and our our unit. We could question it, but nobody else could. Um, and and so the, we used every sort of sinew that we possibly could to get the best out of ourselves. Uh, I still think we had a lot more to give than we actually gave. Um, um, I think we could have gone faster. Um, and we could have been better than, than we are, but that that. That's debatable. That's that, that's um, um, sort of the nature of the game. Is that uh, um, sometimes trying to get Matt to train at his capability uh, was sometimes quite tough. Yeah. Well, I, I do. I do wonder. I do. When someone said to me once, um, "Oh, that moment in Athens, and Matt, just off oh, all that emotion that came out," I said. I think he might have experienced lactate for the first time. <laughs> uh, over four. Uh, <laughs> only, only a little bit. <laughs> I think I think he's experienced what we all suffer every day. Um, 4.2 millimoles really stings. <laughs> oh! <laughs> well, I remember, so I can remember on the training camps, um, I remember playing you in the semi-final, Steve, in uh, table tennis. I'm thinking, geez, that look across the table. I wouldn't <laughs> want to race against this guy. Um, and I sort of dinked it into the net. And then and I remember playing you, Matt, at Scrabble. And I was like, geez, it's supposed to be like a nice, careful, quiet game. But, but it got, it, the, the whole board started to condense into this one corner of competitiveness of, of weird words. So <laughs> there's all these... There's all these competitiveness uh, angles that used to come out. So, so that was a mistake on your part, though. You needed to play me against Scrabble and Matt. <laughs> you would have been all right. Yeah, that's 
damn it. Uh, that would have made me feel good. Oh, no, I, I always had football. Um, uh, but Altitude with you lot, because working with you, you know, like, suddenly like, okay, these are different, this is a different species. Okay, that's why they are elite. Okay, I've got numbers, da, 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 da. And then I go to Altitude, Sierra Nevada with you guys. I play football. I feel like Diego Maradona. <laughs> I'm like, I just suddenly feel like time has sped up. I sell, sell a dummy and they, they are sold for a good couple of hours. <laughs> oh, dear. So, so Steve, um, was that a pressure release then with that classic all-time clanging quote that, that is just a gem. If anyone sees me go near a boat, they have my permission to shoot me. Was that the pressure valve of competition build-up, fourth-time, relentless competitiveness? No, uh, no question about it is that um, we were on a training camp in January of that year and uh, that uh, Matt would, had gone for an afternoon uh, uh, little nap and Jürgen and I went out for a coffee. And uh, Jürgen asked me, he said, are you going to retire after Atlanta? I said, well, yeah, I, 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 I might do, but I'm, I'm not 100% certain. And as it got closer, I knew that I was going to stop, uh, that I, I, I had enough of, of that pressure situation uh, where it's all on your shoulders. As Matt described beautifully earlier of, of, uh, uh, of that waiting around for that final and, and what you're going through and it is sheer mental and physical hell that your brain is trying to tell you that you shouldn't be doing this and I just had enough of that um, and the emotion of that whole week and then we crossed the line and we achieved what we set out to do uh, we, we, we set an uh, Olympic record um, uh, which was quite nice to have at, at the time um, but they also then put a broadcast pontoon into the water. So normally at Olympic Games, you row down, you cross the line, uh, that uh, you gather your thoughts, you gather your breath, you, you sometimes paddle up to a, a 250 metre marker, then everyone rows down, you peel off into the medal stages. I think that's that what happened of, of, uh, of that one. But we got interviewed in that time. And so you know what it's like watching TV of sports where someone's just done something on the sporting field and a mic shoved in, in front of their face and uh, you're not really thinking. And we've never experienced that before. We've never been in that situation before. And you're sort of almost gasping for breath still from crossing the line. And Dan Topolsky is asking you questions. And I used a four-letter word that I shouldn't have done. And then that statement came out. I don't know where it came from. I didn't even know that I'd said it. And it wasn't until people started saying to me well, after I got back home that it sort of resonated with people. I had to play it back on the video mm. to see if it was actually true or not. I didn't, I didn't know that I'd made that statement, but that's how I felt at that, that particular time. Um, the, of, of it wasn't sort of overall joy of what we've, what we've done. It was job really well done. Um, fantastic, move on. How did you feel hearing that, Matt? Did you do you remember those words? Yeah. In fact, watching the tape back, um, I think I mutter under my breath during his answer, and I think I come up. I, I have to watch it back. I think I must. I'll try and find it on YouTube. But it's sort of 
it was absolutely no surprise to me because all the way around that last year, that last season, Steve had been saying goodbye to all the stops on the circuit. You know, Lucerne is a lovely place to go and row. And, you know, so we would we, we would sort of go for a swim and after our racing was over and it would sort of be like, well, I won't come back here again. You know, we joked about throwing an ergo into the lake at altitude. <laughs> it was sort of, do you know what I mean? Last Henley, that was a big thing. Um, you know, it was, it was just, it was, it was him putting to rest a really long career. And so him then saying emphatically, I am not doing this again, was absolutely, I certainly did not take me by surprise because his children were getting older. He, he didn't want to stay for the second half of the Olympics. He and Anne and the children were going down to Florida, I think, to Disney. And it was just, that was time that he needed. It was sort of time to put back to the family, you know, time to grow up um, and not be and not be a sort of self-centered sportsman anymore. And that was completely fine by me. And so it was of no surprise that he was like, that's it, I'm out of here. Gold medal, thank you very much. Uh, number four, no one's ever done that before. You know, bye bye, and 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 so no, it was it was perhaps more emphatic than I, you know, would have put <laughs> it. But but I was like, no, that's exactly him. And so I spent the second half of the Olympics um, thinking about right. Well, what 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 does that now mean for me? Do I want to go on? And I, I don't want to stop. I'm too young to stop. I want to go on. You know, what are the options for for Sydney? Um, who shall I row with? Should I do a pair? When, when, you know, shall I go and have a beer with Jürgen and um, start making decisions? It was, it was done for me. That was absolutely clear. And so then, did you have to reset quite hard, Matt? When Steve's uh, Sydney might be cool. Did you have to sort of go? <laughs> are you sure? Uh, are you going to get nervous about it? <laughs> so I, I phoned up Jürgen after the sort of because because. You know, we all went our different ways after the games, and I think Jurgen went to Germany for a while. And um, I, it was, it must have been. I mean, the Olympics in in Atlanta were July, so it must have. This must have now been end of August, early September. The idea of look going back to training, and you know, it was beginning to get to my. And so I phoned up Jurgen. In fact, I went to see Jurgen at uh, Leander. And not to start training, just to have a chat with him. And uh, I said, Jürgen, you know, what about a pair? What about a four? Like, what are we doing? Like, I, I need, you know, what's, what are your ideas? And he said, oh, have you spoken to Steve? And to begin, for the first split second, I thought he was, he was meaning you should go and talk to Steve to ask his advice about what you should do. And then it was like, uh, oh, no, he means he might be. And I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, go and talk to Steve. And so I thought, should I jump in my car and drive around to Steve's house? No, I went up to Jürgen's office and phoned up Steve and he picked up. And, and I, say, uh, I said to him, Jürgen says, you're thinking about, about carrying on. And Steve said, yeah, well, I'm thinking about it. Um, and it was, that, that translation was, I reckon, I don't know, he can say for himself, but translation was I desperately want to carry on but I haven't quite plucked up the courage to mention it to Anne and the kids at this point um <laughs> and, uh, and then the first thing out of my mouth was 
do a pair anymore. Like, let's do a four. Because we've done the pair. We've done two Olympics back to back. And we set ourselves a target of winning every race between Barcelona and Atlanta. We were undefeated for four years. There was just no more that we could have done. There is no one left to beat. There is no competition waiting that we hadn't won or been deprived of or whatever. It just felt like, and particularly the run into Atlanta, it felt like we were slightly waiting for the field to close up on us rather than dominating the way we had in the early 90s. Um, and Steve said, well, that sounds like, you know, that sounds like a good plan. Why don't we talk about it with Jürgen and let's fix a date. We start training. And then it was like, whoosh, we had a, had a project and, and off we went again. Um, and so it wasn't, it was a, a very sudden in my, in, you know, I wasn't involved with, we still wasn't talking to him about whether or you're trying to encourage him. I was fully preparing myself for, right, this is going to be an Olympics without Steve and all the challenges that that would have brought. So, so how quickly was the transfer from um, you, you can use a gun on me through to let's do this? 48 hours. I've... 48 hours. <laughs> but I didn't tell anybody for for uh, two months. So you've only just got your medal. You've just got back to your your accommodation. Just, uh, uh, shaking hands with with Mickey Mouse. <laughs> uh, probably, I got they, they did a, a, a celebration and and I headed the one of the parades and they gave me a, the, the key to Disney. Um, they made a big big thing of it. I've still got this big wooden key somewhere at home that um, I'm not sure if it opens anything. Um, but no, the, I, I, we, we talked about the pressure. We talked about the, the, the stress that I was really under at that. And I was disappointed. I didn't enjoy Atlanta as a games. And for somebody like me that had been to four games of leaving it at that point, um, it just didn't feel right. And I love Australia. We've gone out and trained there a number of times. I love the Australian outdoor culture, sporting culture. And uh, the draw of that was just too much. And I, I think in the press conference when, when uh, announced that I was going to carry on, I think I came up with a line is that uh, I sat uh, Anne and, and, the, and the two girls down, Zach wasn't born at that, at that time. And we had a, uh, uh, an ultimatum of, of does dad carry on rowing or not? And I bribed the kids with with lollipops, so they were both in my favour. It wasn't actually true, but I came up with that that, that story. Um, and that um, uh, I remember some things really stick in my mind really clearly. And I can remember getting up to go training that first day of going back. And I was I asked Jurgen for two more weeks uh, leave before coming back, and he actually said, uh, "You've got to be back on the first of December. If you're not back on the first of December." don't bother coming back and I left it until that day uh, which I've never done before in my career knowing that I probably wouldn't be having another day off uh, right the way through to, to Sydney if I if I could get back and be at the, the, the right level and I remember uh, the kids are up in the bedroom and I remember uh, putting my kit on and, and walking out the house and, and Natalie as clear as that I can hear it now they're saying oh dad you've got to go training because you've got to win another gold medal and this is a, the, what she would have been five, um, uh, five about that 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 sort of time. Um, but you talk about to Natalie about us rowing. Her favourite city in the world is Sydney, 
her favourite uh, element was the Sydney Olympics. And Matthew knows her as well as, as I do in, in, in those respects. And uh, it was always, oh, we want to go and see Mickey Mouse. We want to go and do this. We don't want to be on these training camps because obviously Anne being the team doctor um, and being on the team as well is that the kids came around on quite a lot of our, our camps and, and preparation. So the athletes knew them really well as well and of course they don't say oh yeah dad's going round. well this is a lot of fun this this is going to be fantastic uh, they're just bored they just want to get on to the next next thing all their summer holidays was carting around on training camps with us or with my parents in a camper watching us race um that was their that was their upbringing so so you had that's an interesting point of view from from actually feeling the backing of your full family your children being conscious enough to be thinking and encouraging you to do that um given what you went through from the atlanta to sydney cycle with diabetes um with ill health and so on struggling with your training i think you might, i think you broke your arm falling off a swiss ball at one point um is that right yeah yep yeah. <laughs> um, um did that make it just a little bit more uh, manageable and Anne wanted me to retire she wanted to, to go back to normality whatever normality was um, and actually when Matt phoned me up that time from Jürgen's office I was actually in a car driving from a function or to a function or back from it and I, I went headlong into whatever was offered me uh, financially or appearance wise I would go and do because I thought this is going to be my life for the next few months few years um, uh, and try and make some finance out of the, the, uh, the process that we've been in. And that was sort of reinforcing why I wanted to carry on, not because of the finances or what our situation was is, is that I, I wasn't ready yet for standing up on stage and saying, oh, I did this back in 1066 and, and wasn't it wonderful? And if you do this in your business, you can do this, this and this. Um, I wasn't there. I was doing it, but I wasn't there at that point. This was going to be my gravy train for a few months after the games. Um, and that was one of the reasons that I wanted to, to sort of rubber stamp my decision after 48 hours that I wanted to carry on. And there was lots of, of stages within those uh, two or three months of should I carry on or not. Um, uh, and then, as you say, rightly, with, with, the, with the, the ill health. Um, that uh, that that still brings tears to my eyes now, and I'll try and tell the story without getting too emotional about it. Is that in South Africa we went on a land camp, uh, cycling um, weights, ergos, and I was really struggling. Um, the colitis had come back. I'd got the di diabetes, and my performance was shocking, absolutely shocking. And every training session I was doing was just proving that I couldn't stay at the same level. And um, after one, uh, one cycle, I came in half an hour behind everybody else, threw my bike into uh, the garage. They were all having lunch. I went up to my room and literally all I've been doing is turning every crank of the pedals was when I get back, I'm going to complete this session. But when I get back, I'm going to pack my bags. I'm going to go to the airport. I got back in my room, flat on the bed, didn't even have the energy to even pack my bags. That evening, phoned Anne, and uh, somebody that wanted me to retire, she said, 
will find a way through this. And that shocked me, really shocked me. Matt said a bit earlier is that we're very selfish in what we're doing and we're unaware of the people that we take with us. Because we're in our bubble and that's what we do. And of, of reading Natalie's reports of when she was talking about her favorite times in her life it all brings it back to you. It, it's not just about you. It's a much bigger picture too. I remember that camp. I really remember that camp in that it was, because it was cycling as well in South Africa, it was, it was even worse. It was, it, it was the sort of, because with cycling, there's a group dynamic, which means that if you're in the group, you actually don't work as hard. As soon as you drop off the group, you're on your own and you've got the headwind and, and then it's a lot harder work. Whereas if you can stay in the pack, if you can stay in the peloton, you can cycle around, do 40 seconds, a minute at the front, and then someone else is gonna take a turn and you could just keep a nice rhythm. And you could, and, when we, and we'd be doing, I guess, three or four hours on the bike in the morning down way down down to the very southern cape and steve would always drop off the group and to begin with you think oh well you know today's a bad day and then it just went on and there was no there was no hiding and in in a boat there'd be there'd be a way of covering it but it was just it was horrible to watch it was horrible to watch because it's like a double whammy. Not only have you worked harder on your own to get to where the group is when they have a break, but at the time that he would come in to the truck wherever we were going to turn around and turn back and go back to the hotel, we'd already been there for three, four, five minutes, refueling, relaxing, sitting in the shade, and, we, and everyone was just about sort of, so we'd have it, we'd have, we'd worked less hard on the way out, we'd have more break. And then he would come in, obviously struggling, obviously shattered, but there was nothing you could, it was sort of, it was brutal. It was really brutal. Um, and I, I really remember that. And then, you know, to jump ahead, there, was, there were times in the run up to Sydney where it would be like, is Steve gonna make this crew? Because at one point, Tim, Tim Foster had an injury in 99. He put his hand through a window. We had to row for six months with Ed Code. We then won the World Championships with Ed Code. Obviously, Steve is in that, in that boat. But then we had three bowsiders uh, for, for, for two seats. If James and myself were considered shoe-ins for stroke side, then we had three bowsiders for the other seats. And it was like, well, is Steve going to going to make that great or were we going to have two two young guns beat him out to the place um and then i remember you know sort of right before the games we had a holding camp on the gold coast and it was a really windy day and 
by this time selection had been decided of course we were all set up and and Jürgen said we're not going to go up to the lake today it's too windy it's going to be too rough we had a bit of argument about whether we should go and just punch through the waves and use that as practice and he said no 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 we're going to do a rowing machine session we'll just do bursts on the ergo uh you know sort of 10 15 strokes each and then we'll rotate we only had one machine so you've got lots of rest and then you had an effort and then you got lots of rest and everyone else would take their turn and so what that means is then everyone your all your crewmates are gathered behind the machine when you when you're doing your thing do you remember this session steve i don't remember that particular one but i remember that those, those sessions and then so we were so we were all watching each other's split and on that day with about 10 days to go before sydney steve produced splits on the rowing machine which i don't think i'd ever seen him do it was it was off the scale and i remember standing next to james behind him watching him kick our ass basically on this rowing machine and James just turned to me and whispered out of the corner of his mouth the way he does, aren't you really glad he's in our boat? <laughs> 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 but it was like, a, it was like, a, oh my God, at the age of whatever he was, thir were you 39 38. then? You weren't? 38. 38. At the age of 38, he was producing splits, which I hadn't seen him do. And I'd been rowing with him for more than 10 years by that stage so i'd seen him from 27 28 through to 38 and on that session it was like holy mother that is that is off the scale mm. and that was that was the, and at that point it was like you know just not gonna not gonna question whether whether he's got this in him and and all the media were were saying look he's diabetic he's got this calcitive colitis he's 38 it's the oldest person it's been going on for so long he's got a target on his black blah 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 but on and on and on and on and on and it was like there was no question in that boat on that day whether it was it was we you know there was no there was no oh yeah it's going to be a good story well usher steve in he won it on he won it on merit which i think is one of the one of the best things you can say about him. It's just, you know, to produce that level at 38 when we were, we were racing 23 year old. I always felt that I could produce the goods of, 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 of getting to Olympic final uh, of that, that uh, uh, three years build up uh, within the four. Um, but there were times that I knew that I was struggling. I knew everyone else knew that I was struggling. And all credit to, to, to Matt is the of two guys that won Atlanta, uh, held the world record, held the Olympic record, um, and then had to get in a, in a boat with this guy that's really struggling. And where Matthew was just sort of going through the roof with ergo scores, weights lifted, uh, every element of, of, of the testing of the sport, of just going through the, the roof. And then we'd be going out in the pair and racing other people from the British team for selection and not being top dogs. Um, and that uh, he, he was able to hold and, and keep confidence all the time. And I can remember of, of before the final trials up at Nottingham, um, I'd, I'd tell a story of, of a guy called John Nabber as an American swimmer, how he, he broke things down into small chunks to break 
down the target that he had to try and do to, to win an Olympic gold medal. And I've told this story a, a lot. Matt, Matt's heard it a great deal. And uh, we'd done some a time trial uh, at Henley, uh, the, the preparation for the final trials up at Nottingham. And uh, next day uh, after that, uh, Matt said, right, we're going for a warm-up run, which is pretty unique. Uh, we used to do warm-up runs, but it was not Matt taking the lead from that. So off we went, shoe shuffle uh, of, of down, the, of down the bank for a couple of hundred metres in our flip-flops. And he says, you know that, uh, that, that story you tell about John Nabb? And I said, yeah. He says, we're going to do the same. Instead of breaking it down to one-fifth of an eye blink of, of 12 hundredths of a second in every stroke that he, he was taking or every hour he, he was training, he says, we got beaten by 10 seconds uh, yesterday. We've got 10 days before the, the race. We've got to find a second a day. How are we going to do it? And that's, that was his attitude. It wasn't thinking, God, we're miles behind the pack. We've got no chance. How are we going to do it? We didn't win. Uh, we didn't even come second. Uh, but we did close that gap. And that was the, the sort of the, the, the willpower and, and the positive thinking that, that Matt always had. Um, that uh, the, the blend of, of, of us together um, at our time was, was, was unstoppable. I, I can remember, again, up at Altitude, 99, no, it must have been 2000. It must have been as we ticked into Olympic year. And this, uh, Tim was a bit injured. I think we were doing some stuff on the bike up at Altitude. But Steve, you were doing, we were, we were getting up extra uh, extra early to do smaller sessions give you time to refuel so there was a session before everyone else had trained and something mid-morning and then something a little bit later so you're getting the training volume and we're just adapting how you're doing it giving you that chance to fuel it was me you Jürgen that room um and and there was just a real stoicism at the time of you turning it out and I was just watching you just thinking what a legend just doing that doing what's necessary against this adversity but what I have just heard from you is is actually during that time there was a real cost to you in terms of the effort that was required you leaning a lot harder on other people in order to to get there ultimately um I also remember those last few months where you found that form and just going, just thinking, phew, <laughs> that's brilliant. But it, it not, not, you know, that fairy tale ending is, is incredible, but ultimately what, what went before it sets it up. It, it was a fairy tale in, in some ways because that uh, uh, most of the evidence leading towards it was not, not that the, I was rowing with some three outstanding guys. Um, and arguably that you could say Matthew and I were on a par with each other in Atlanta. Uh, and then he sort of leapt uh, ahead of me before, uh, after that. Before that, I was, I, I was the key player in, in, in all the boats that I'd been into. And then suddenly I'm rowing in this four that is not one of the key players. I'm making up the numbers. Um, and uh, that's that was hard for me to to cope with, and then having the the sort of struggles at different times. I did go to Jurgen twice, especially when Matthew and I were rowing in the pair, 
uh, and saying you, you've got to drop me is that I'm uh, I'm not producing at the moment um, that you you cannot you cannot justify me being in the in this crew especially when I was rowing in the pair with with with, with Matt and every time uh, those two times I did that I got a verbal clip around the ear from him and said this crew needs you you've got to be uh, uh, on form um, and you'll be you'll be fine. And that's the sort of the, the, the attitude that they hear. And then you go out and do a, another ship performance. And you're thinking, what is this guy on? What can he see in me that's going to get back? But I, I had to, to make those stances for my own moral well-being in some ways, because I didn't want to be the weakest link. You don't want to be the, the reason that uh, this unbeaten four gets beaten. Um, and uh, so uh, that 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 was that was that was uh, very very difficult to do. But making that stance of going to his room and saying you've got to drop me, I felt that I could get back onto form. I felt that I could get back to it. But as Matt talked about before, with the makeup of the four people that would be left, a world championship winning four probably, uh, Olympic probably winning four probably. How are you going to get back into it? How are you going to be able to show that at 38 that you can then get back into it? And that's the bit that I, I struggled with with myself. Um, and, and sort of uh, I, I felt that my moral stance is that I had to make that step. And I was serious about it. I wasn't just saying, oh, Jürgen's going to be nice to me. He's going to keep me in. That's how I felt because I was letting everybody else down at that, that time. But I just, I knew that I could get back, but I didn't know how I could prove myself to everybody that I could get back. It was more about, I think, what Steve would have been feeling because we were in a quantified world there in terms of your lactate or power at two millimole or, or performance. Everything was being measured and, and, and noted. Um, and so you would have felt the edge taken off some of those performances but it'd be interesting to get your thoughts, Matt, in terms of what Steve brought to the boat in terms of performance anyway, in terms of leadership qualities. I think, well, I mean, I think there's a, there would have been a huge chunk missing if we took Steve out of that equation, which is essentially what I, a version of that, that I lived in Athens in the fullness of time four years later. Because at that point, through, through a sort of accident of, history and whatever that it, it ended up with James, Ed Code and myself in a in the other quartet ready to race for gold in 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 Athens. And then, you know, I I felt I had to change my behavior at that point to sort of fill some of the role that Steve had done before. Um, which was sort of about um being vocal about being demanding about making sure that we got everything right out of each session those were habits that that steve bought in space it was just a given we would have you know the the sort of post um uh outing post session uh debrief with steve you know he would not be shy of saying that's not good enough that's not good enough we can do better. Um, and so, you know, having that, having that quality dial turned all the way up where I would be happy to say, 
that that's good or that's good enough, that wouldn't be the language that Steve would use. We might be talking about exactly the same session. And he would be saying, that's not that good or that's not good enough. I might be saying, that's okay. Um, and James would be saying, that's terrible. We can do, you know, that's the worst session I've ever done. You know, James would be like way at the other end of the, of the, the sort of language spectrum. And Tim and I would be at the sort of happy-go-lucky, this is okay, we're doing all right, guys. Um, and so I thought, I think Steve bought a huge amount of that, um, which, which was really reassuring, which is what we needed. Um, particularly that, that unit under that pressure when it came to it, we didn't want to leave any, we didn't want to leave any questions about our preparation. You know, the whole idea is you get to the start line feeling we've done everything in our power to get here. We've done, we are the best prepared we could possibly be. Just taking your uh, blood sugar there, Steve, that, that, um, it's very apt, a little beep in the background. I can remember again, I don't think it, I don't can't remember what training camp it was now, but someone swapped out your urine sample. Um, and it was dark as anything. And I thought, oh, that's going to be dehydrated. So I ran it through the, the osmometer and um, it came out as relatively low. And I thought, oh, something's gone wrong. Something's up. It must be related to your diabetes. And I spent the next four hours faxing back and forth to the UK um, with the medical team, with Budge, with everybody about what, what am I observing here before I was to speak to you until I think it was Bobby Thatcher. I'm not sure. It might, have, might, might not have been. Said, what was Steve's tea uh, on, the, on the urine chart? <laughs> and it swapped out this tea. <laughs> and I'd spent, <laughs> I spent half a day researching the urine of diabetics on that. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> they wouldn't I don't think you had a urine chart, yeah. Um, this has been fascinating in the sense of just, just exploring the depths of which you've lived it. And it was never in my position at the time to start going, oh, let's, let's discuss it and unpack it now, because you were living it and processing it and ruminating on the moments. But um, I'm curious to take you through to sort of now about how the system's moved on considerably and how we're in a situation now where there's you know systematic development of medalists where you are pioneering and setting those standards but there's there's a there's a switch that we seem to be living through where we're much more aware of of wrongdoing in sport uh the cases such as athlete A and bullying, the abhorrent stories that are now unearthing about what happened behind closed doors through to bullying, through to tough love, through to relentless, through to straight talking, as you've just mentioned. And we seem to be searching for a different way of producing performance, which is might be kinder or more nuanced, which maybe not as compatible to what you lived through, which was all-encompassing all focus and, and, as you talked about, self-focus. Uh, self where, where are you at in terms of as finding a way that, that is different but, but, but true to the heart of pursuing a goal and pushing and driving? 
but doing it well. So I've done some thinking around this because I get to follow some of these stories um, in my role as a journalist now. Um, and I think I circle back to the idea, you know, re-examining the way that we behaved, the way that we interacted, the way that we were coached, the way that we were supported. You know, was there anything in that that I wouldn't want for my kids, for example? That's the sort of benchmark. And, and I don't think there is. I think, you know, we definitely pushed each other. We were definitely pushed hard, but it never tipped over into bullying or worse or abuse or whatever. But, you know, we were adults. We were, you know, physical specimens. We were confident enough to voice our opinion. In fact, we were encouraged. It was, it was sort of the lifeblood of our, of our unit and our training groups that we were able to say, do you know what, Jürgen, that's an absolute, I don't agree with that. That's, well, that's a terrible idea. Um, and, you know, so we had agency, we our, our voice was really important. And if at any point, any of us stepped out of line, you know, Jürgen would say, that's not on. I remember him being furious with some of the guys in Sierra Nevada. And it was the sort of last night and loads of people had gone out to the bar and got pissed and stay out until four in the morning and climbed on the bus up that he's thinking of beer and and he was fuming. He was fuming. But it it didn't, it just it it that was the end. He was he was annoyed at that. It, it he made his his feelings very well known, and that was the end of it. And that was about the limit of his there was no sort of punitive power that he he was never going to say, Oh, because of that, you're not selected, or you have to. I, I mean, I can't even we didn't have it in our lexicon about punishment or or worse. Um but I think, you know, looking at the other examples of sport in the same era, which are now so horrendous, what you're thinking is, you know, these people, the athletes involved were younger, were never empowered in the same way, were never asked for their opinion, were always told, this is what win gold, wins gold medals, therefore it must happen or it was secret or it was sort of you were one-on-one -on -one, and we were, none of that was was happening in the rowing team uh, of our era. Um, is there another way through? I think is a is an amazing challenge. Um, and I I think to be honest, I think we are the worst people to ask about this because all our DNA is lined up on it. Just takes hard work. You've just got to push each other. You know, we are we we think because it worked for us, that is the only way. And I think there's a, I think it's a really fascinating challenge to say, how, how would we change it? But I, but looking back, if I, if my kids were involved in exactly the same system as we went through, I'd be like, well, it's going to be hard, but you're going to get the results. You're going to see how good you are. Um, and it'll be fun and, and you'll feel proud of it, which is all, which is all true. Even now, even 25 years on, it was, it was hugely challenging. It was hugely successful. It was a lot of fun. I'd do it all over again. And what about you, Steve? In terms of you, you've you've set the benchmark. You set the benchmark which everybody followed. Uh, Matt got in a boat with you, and I can imagine, Matt, that would have been pretty intimidating. 
um, at the time, you were setting the standards and continued to. And any rower that you'd ever speak to, certainly in the British system, but I would imagine globally, but also worldwide in terms of athletes, would look to you. And that's the that's the level that I, I need to be setting standards at. Unless you're insanely talented and you just want to see what what comes up is to, whether you care whether the results come through. Um, are we in danger of, uh, you know, talking to Kath Bishop, long win, amazing campaign for a, a different way of, of thinking about process, but perhaps less on results. Where, where are you at? Um, I suppose where I am at is that uh, if you're putting yourself on the line to compete at sporting events, which is recognised of, of being first, second and third and so forth, is that uh, you, you, you have to... Of, of 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 especially if you're trying to get funding to be able to do that as well it's a justification of every element there is for it and uh, <clears throat> every day you're not going to be smiling some days are going to be tough some days are going to be really hard and I suppose I came through uh, Mike Spratling and, and Matt was was coached by Mike a, uh, a little bit but I went through uh, uh, 10 years of, of, of Mike uh, who was a perfectionist and miles make champions and that was bred into me is that uh, if you wanted to be good at something if you wanted to have really good handwriting this was one of his lines if you want to have really good ha handwriting you have to practice and you practice and you practice and you practice uh, that's why I stopped doing weights through through Mike because he, he's saying do you want to be a weightlifter or do you want to be a rower get out there and row and sometimes I'd be absolutely exhausted, uh, being sort of the youngest in the in the in the sculling squad at that that point, and being more of an explosive athlete, I was better at sprinting than I was endurance. Um, so the older guys had really high levels of endurance. I would struggle at, but every weekend that we came together, I would be up there with them. I just couldn't do it on a day-to-day -day basis, but we didn't train on a day-to-day -day basis uh, at, at that period of time of the, of the late 70s and, and 80s. Um, but I wanted to do it. I wanted to be Olympic champion. Um, I was a 10-year-old when Mark Spitz won his, his seven gold medals, all in world record times. And that had a huge impact on me. I didn't know what rowing was at, at that point. Um, it wasn't for another uh, four years before I found before I found rowing, but after one, two years, that I felt that my destiny. I was going to go to an Olympic Games, and I, I was I was going to win an Olympic gold medal. I thought I'd only win one, uh, but that was the belief that I had at, at that point. And then going through Mike's of, of preparation, where he was a, a, a lightweight before there was lightweight rowing. Um, so he had to be technically better than anybody else. He had to be uh, stronger than anybody else. He had to do more than everybody else just to be able to compete on that. And, and that rubbed off on, on me as well. Um, and then obviously coming through the Eastern Bloc domination of the sport, um, where you would turn up at Lucerne, sometimes Lucerne would be a harder regatta than the World Championships because East Germany would come first and second in Cox's Force, for instance. And so you'd be fourth place, not me, because I wasn't rowing at that, that, that point I was sculling. Uh, but you'd be finishing fourth at Lucerne and thinking, great, I've got a chance of a bronze medal at the World Championships because East Germany could only send one boat. 
uh, and through that that dominance and then seeing that dominance being eroded away by the odd western crew and i was part of that with with uh, with andy and then uh, and then with 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 matt um of of this sort of of country that sort of dominated the sport of of, of taking out and you were never going to be able to do that of 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 being able to have your cake and eat it you have to work hard you have to be dedicated um the old sayings of, of the like of of uh, um um there's there's no easy session you you've got to pay your dues to be able to have that right of, of standing up there and my, matt's right is that's the era that we we came through but we wanted to do it we wanted to be champions we like winning um, what motivated us to train as hard as we did is because we wanted to stand on that middle podium of whatever race it was. Um, uh, and to do that, there was no shortcuts. We had to do what we do. But with Jürgen uh, and with Mike, it was never the saying, right, you've got to do this. It was always your choice um, that, uh, that you could take it or leave it. But if you left it, you're, you're walking out of the team in, in, in some ways. Um, and so that uh, of, of this new way of thinking of, 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 of trying to get to the top, but more gently in some ways, it doesn't relate to me at all. I can't comprehend it because that's not what I know. I had to work very hard. I was, had a reasonable amount of talent. Um, I remember a journalist, a French journalist did a, an article on me uh, when I was, uh, I was rowing with, with Matt, I think we were in the pair, it might have been the first year of the four. Um, and uh, he, he ranked me of all my uh, abilities or, or the abilities that you need to be a champion. And I didn't have a 10, he marked them out of 10, and I didn't have a 10 in any of them. And I was really pissed off that he'd gone there, somebody that's been uh, two or three times Olympic champion, uh, a multi-world champion by this time. And I wasn't getting a 10 in anything. But actually, when I look back at it, is that he was probably right. Um, um, I, I, I was strong, but I wasn't the strongest. Um, I had reasonably good technique. That was probably one of my weakest areas uh, that wouldn't matter. But determination of, of, of single-mindedness, of, of all these sort of elements, I'm thinking, that's that's a bolted on 10 for, for for me but then what what he did was that he added them all up and there was a final score at the end of it and my final score was ahead of anybody else where you'd get a thomas langer of getting a 10 of of technique um and and some of that but they would have weaker areas um uh, from that and their overall score and then i could relate to that um, and so that's the upbringing that, that I had and Matt came through as well. And, and so this sort of softer, softer, smoother, gentler way of getting it, I just can't comprehend. You can do that and enjoy sport for doing it. But if you want to be a, a winner and something like the Olympic Games, you have got to push boundaries um, and of, of push that you've never pushed before. Each Olympics, you've got to be faster than the one you were before or else you're not going to be in the same position. How are you going to do that? By doing less? By being more gently? Yes. As Matt said, there are cases that uh, of, of abuse, and it's uh, horrific. Um, but it's our age, as, as Matt said as well, is that we were adults. 
when we're in that situation as of, uh, of, of getting to that level from 16, 17 um, through into your 20s is that you, you've got your own mind in some ways. I mean, you're talking some other sports where they're very young children. Um, it's a different, it could be a different ball, ball game. And that's all got to have a balance to it. Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing a sense of personal growth if, if you're growing as a process of the hardship, the difficulties, the the challenge, as opposed to, you know, I guess, you know, the opposite of growth, you're being eroded. Um, interesting. Look, last question. I've taken so much of your time up um, and I could talk to you uh, and reflect and chit chat forever. If you, in, in that spirit of, of reflecting back, what, if you had a message for your 20 year old self, um, what would it be? Well, I think I, I'm certainly lucky. I have no, I have absolutely no regrets about my career. I think I got, I got the break, you know, just at the right moment to row with Steve, you know, we made the most of it, the results speak for themselves. So I'm sort of in a, a fortunate position where I don't look back and think, oh, if only I could change this, if only I could change that. So I really don't want to, don't want to, you know, encourage my 20 year old self to do anything other than savor it, which is, you know, which is sort of a lovely position to be in quarter of a century on, you're just saying, look, just enjoy it. Not that we didn't enjoy it, but just, you know, these things don't come along very often in life. Even one of those games would be enough for most people. Um, and we had multiple. So just, you know, just really revel in it and, and, and enjoy the sensation because it was a very, very special experience. And, and it, you know, in all senses of the word, it was life changing. Steve? It is about enjoyment, is that if you've got to push yourself to your limits or what you think your limits and beyond your limits are, you've got to be enjoying it. And if you're not enjoying it of 75% of, of the time, um, I've, I've used the percentage of 50% of the time sometimes, but I think it should be a little bit more than 50%, is that then it's probably not the right thing to do and not probably not the right thing to do year after year after year after year. Um, I, I do think of, of people like Ben Hunt Davis, uh, who was was around of, of of sort of more Matt Matt's career, he was a couple of years younger than, than than Matt, and he was a grinder. He would try his heart out, but just couldn't make it. Would fall short all the time. Um, but at the end of the day, he got through to to the to the games. I think I think he's only medaled twice: a silver medal at the World Championships and a gold medal at the Olympic Games. Um, um, after 15 years of hard graft, if you asked him, was it worth it? He would say, oh, yes, definitely. Um, and even if you didn't get the success that we had uh, as well, is that the camaraderie, um, um, the friendships that you have it will stay with you for the rest of your life. We're both stewards at Henry Warringatta. We have road pasts of, of people that, that uh, have won... Uh, races before um, and they'll, they'll come together and they may have not rode with each other for, for uh, years um, but there is that camaraderie of what they went through uh, to get there of whatever level if it was a schoolboy uh, through to to international um, that uh, that that time spent um, and, and seeing that year after year at Henley 
uh, the crews coming back is quite special to see. And, and that's the team element of the sport is that yes, we think about as individuals, we train a lot as individuals, we're pushing each other as individuals, but it's actually the sport, um, um, the closeness, the, the camaraderie. I, I did a podcast with, with Crossy uh, a couple of months ago uh, with uh, Richard Budget and Adrian Ellison. Um, and uh, it's really the first time that we sat down and talked about the 84 experience. And uh, it, it was just really enjoyable, even though that we came from very different backgrounds, very different approaches to the sport, very different ways of we felt that it should be done. Um, but that time is magical and it will always be magical. And we're fortunate that we can uh, have that magic of look back at, at multiple times. Brilliant. Look, I mean, it was magical time for, for me and you've been such a big significant influence on my life and work and um, you've both been a driving force for setting standards that are for me, but also for so many other athletes, teams and everyday folk. And so it's been a real pleasure to, to reflect and, and look back. And, and it sounds as though maybe remind yourself a uh, each other about, I've forgotten that actually, you've forgotten that too. <laughs> so that's been fun too. Thank you so much, Matt, Steve. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Lovely stuff. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Matt and Steve. You can follow Matt on Twitter at Matthew C. Pinsent and Steve at Steve Redgrave 5. You can follow me on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve and Supporting Champions on Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. Look us up at Supporting Champions. If you're looking for some coaching support or some virtual team development to help support you go to the next level in work, life or sport, then take a look at supportingchampions.co.uk forward slash coaching hyphen mentoring or drop us a note at inquiries at supportingchampions.co.uk and you can sign up for a free consultation to explore which package is right for you. 